Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your favorite autopsy techs and lovely hosts, Jess and Alice. This week we're watching NCIS, mostly because we missed our man Ducky. And this episode is season four, episode 10, titled Smoked. And it's, it's a doozy of an episode. So let's get into it. So we open on a construction site and these workers are moving an old furnace and they find a partial obstruction in the smokestack. So they step back and someone clears it out and an ashy body falls from above. At the office, the teams are all reading McGee's book. It's a fictional book, but it's clearly based on everybody in the office and they all know it. It's a subplot that we don't really get into, but it was just really funny that they're all like reading it. They're trying to solve murders, but they're like, ah, the stupid book. (laughs) It's like a love story between Dinozo and Ziva and like they're fictional characters. Okay. I will just say one thing about that. They're always like, they're like, how could McGee think that there's any tension between us as they're like literally like pressed up <laughs> against each other? Like she's like pressed up against him from behind while he's in his chair. And she's like, I don't understand why he thinks there's something between us. And I'm like, your boobs are on his neck. <laughs> like, Maybe this is why. <laughs> like I'm getting hot watching this. Calm down. <laughs> this is not a steamy show, but you're making it. <laughs> I know. What is happening? How do you not see it? (laughs) So they get a call from dispatch about the scene at the construction site, and then the team heads out. They arrive at the scene, and Ziva is photographing the body, which we give a green flag, and she's also photographing the rats around the scene. And the body appears to be mummified, and the construction worker says it reminds him of the urban legend of a man who dressed as Santa who was stuck in a chimney. Ducky then walks in. And immediately knows what this urban legend they're talking about. Because he's Ducky. Because he's Ducky and he knows everything. And they say that there's no ID, but they don't think he's military. Dinozo's going to look through any missing persons in the area, and Gibbs heads off to the roof to see how this man ended up in the duck anyway. Ducky says, based on decay and condition of skin, the time of death is between two and four months ago. Another green flag for time of death being a time range and not a very specific time, how other shows do. So none of the local missing person reports over the last six months match their John Doe, and there's no one missing from any military base around two to four months ago either. Ducky comes in to correct his time of death. In the morgue, he has the body and says it's perfectly preserved for a rotting corpse, that is. He says, gum tissue decays faster than the rest of the body due to a high degree of bacteria in the mouth. So there are actually a few papers on how gingiva or your gums and oral mucosa can be useful in time of death estimations for forensic experts. One paper followed the study that, quote, was conducted to evaluate the histologic post-mortem changes that take place in human gingival tissues and to correlate these changes with the time interval after death. 31 samples of postmortem human gingival tissues were obtained from a pool of decedents at varied postmortem intervals. So they did 0 to 8 hours, 8 to 16 hours, and 16 to 24 hours. Antemortem samples of gingival tissues for comparison were obtained from patients undergoing crown lengthening procedure. Histological changes in the epithelium or the cytoplasmic and nuclear and connective tissue were assessed. The paper concluded that initiation of decomposition at cellular level appeared within 24 hours after death, and other features of decomposition were observed subsequently. Against this background, histological changes in the gingival tissues may be useful in estimating the time of death in the early postmortem period. The decedent's gums 
are almost intact. So he was smoked like a fine cut of meat shortly after his death, and Ducky says they're looking at like a closer time of death between five and six years ago. Dun dun dun! So Abby is examining the decedent's clothing and packing them in plastic bags. And I also give a possible red flag for her. So typically, smoke or fire clothing that we get from, like, decedents, we put all of that evidence and we store it in a metal paint can so we preserve the evidence. If there's any accelerant used or anything else at the scene, that's all preserved and contained. And she's kind of putting it in, yeah, the plastic bags. Yeah. I will never forget the first time I had a fire case with you and I didn't know about the paint cans and you just like come out of the back room with like giant paint cans and I'm like what are we doing because like they had the tops on so I'm like we painting today like what's happening yeah you're like oh yeah we put all the clothing in here and I'm like oh (laughs) all right they're literally they're metal paint cans I didn't know that either before like working in the morgue I know I had never heard of that and I know I knew before coming in that you're supposed to like if it's if like clothing that you're trying to save is wet or you're trying to preserve evidence that has like blood on it you put it in paper not plastic because plastic will like grow bacteria Mm -hmm. and stuff and paper does that less but uh I had never seen the paint can before, so I just, I just have this visual of you, like, walking into the morgue with, like, two paint cans, and I'm like, what are we doing today? <laughs> Abby also gets a match on the doe's fingerprints, and another red flag, because we've talked about this before in past episodes, but a fingerprint examiner is the one who would need to examine prints to confirm a match, and then they need two other people to confirm that match, so you have, like, a non-biased look at it. And her database is just like, this is it. Because it's Abby. Because Abby, and she knows everything, and their lab is so high tech. But also, this man is very mummified. So I, I don't know about you, but if you ever tried to take a fingerprint from a mummified hand, it's nearly impossible to get anything that looks resembling a fingerprint. We said this on our last episode, and it became our episode title. It's like trying to fingerprint a hard raisin. Mm-hmm. Also, the hands were so desiccated. Did they rehydrate them to get this print? How did she get a print? I thought that too. So we've rehydrated fingerprints and it, it takes a takes a couple, like we, we did it over a few days. It's, we, yeah, we did it over, the one method we did, it was overnight. That's right. It was overnight, but I think it was overnight, but it could go longer because I think we, we did it on a Friday and like yeah. checked the fingerprints on Mondays. But yeah, it could have been overnight. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's not like same day going to happen. It's not same day delivery. No. <laughs> But the match is restricted, which should be impossible because NCIS has top-level clearance. So whoever is blocking them is also in the process of deleting the file as they speak. Abby traced whoever deleted the file to a government server in Arlington, Virginia, and the hacker just so happens to be the FBI. Just then, the FBI agents walk in and say they have something that belongs to him. In the morgue, Ducky and his tech have opened the body. Ducky asks for a petri dish because there's something weird in the man's stomach. The tech pulls out a distal interphalangeal joint, aka the tip of the finger. Or toe. Or toe. (laughs) Tip of the finger or toe. Just below where your finger or toenail starts. So it appears that this is a human toe that they just pulled out of the stomach. The FBI comes in at that point. So wait, (laughs) sorry. So this man ate toes right before he died. We're getting into that. Alice, don't jump ahead. (laughs) I know. I know. But like, I didn't realize that it was like that close to like, 
He must have, like, Oh, yeah, it was, like, it was so intact. It wasn't partially digested or anything. Because it wasn't even, like, they had to tell if it was between a finger finger tip or a toe tip. It was very clearly a toe. Mm -hmm. So it was, like, he had just snacked on those toes and then died. (laughs) Ew. (laughs) I know! I didn't think of that when I was watching it. Like, it was a fresh toe. (laughs) Also, side note, I missed recording with you. Recording alone was not as fun. (laughs) This man's just over here having snacks. <laughs> Snacking on toast. <laughs> Title of the episode there. <laughs> Snacking on toast. Sorry, I just, I don't know why I didn't clock that while I was watching, but like, <laughs> his gastric content was just toe. It was just a toe. So back in the show, the FBI then comes in at that moment and says that their decedent was a cannibal and a serial killer, and the FBI have been looking for him for the past 12 years. But they don't know his name, but the fingerprints that NCIS ran match the fingerprints from his crime scenes. He killed 14 women by drugging and strangling them. They were all missing the toes on their left foot. They were gnawed off. So he was snacking on toes. So he, did, I, again, another thing I didn't notice, like he, so he didn't even like cut them off. He ate the, oh. He gnawed them off. It's actual bone in your toes. It's not cartilage or anything. You do have little bones in there. Like, ugh. Ew, that's so gross yeah, to think about. I know. And I know I should know this as someone who's studied anatomy and works in like the anatomy related field. But have you ever heard that thing where it's like, if you didn't think about it, you'd be able to bite, like, your pinky off. Yeah. Is that true? I mean, I guess it is. Like, if you... it's, oh, it's I mean, it's all, like, mind over matter, because I'm thinking about it. So now I'm like, oh, I could never do that. Humans don't have the power enough to do that, but, like, you definitely could. I just Googled it. I think the most I've done for fingers is disarticulate it, but I did that surgically. Right. I just Googled it. My... <laughs> Speaking of the FBI, I'm definitely on a list of all the things I googled for this episode. And then, can you bite your finger off is what I just googled. And according to BBC Science Focus, uh, at the knuckle, possibly, but it would be very difficult. A 2020 study, or 2012, sorry, study of hand injuries from electric windows in cars found that the average force needed to like break the finger off entirely was 1,485 newtons of force just to fracture the human finger, which sounds like a lot. Wow. Don't bite your fingers off, guys. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. My disturbing Not that this conversation aside. isn't lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the show. <laughs> Back in the show, the FBI says that he died 66 months ago or five and a half years. Because that's when his killings stopped. So Ducky was very accurate with his five to six year range for time of death. All they ever got from his scenes were two partial prints and a single hair. But they still can't figure out why he was on the naval base and being an NCIS crime scene. The FBI wants to take jurisdiction, but Gibbs isn't having it. And he demands that the FBI gives him the hair sample. Abby says she's been rehydrating the head of the decedent to help with a possible ID. I am just very curious on what her rehydration method is. And does she just have the head in, like, a jar to So rehydrate? they showed it, like, on the screen, and it looked, like, digitally. It was, like, rehydrating. Yeah, they had a digital, like, rendition of it. And I was like, it. are you actually... Because then later on, we see in the morgue again, Ducky is looking at the body again, and it's 
still dehydrated. Oh, and the head is still on. So she's digi- she's digitally rehydrating his head. How, what technology? How do you do that? Does Abby have? What year is the show from? Oh, nine. And do, okay. So Abby and Rosewood have the same tech guy. <laughs> and that tech guy is Lucius Fox, who is also Batman's tech guy. <laughs> clearly these gadgets are insane can can our morgue get this tech guy yeah to come in that'd be swaggy so mcgee has uploaded every local missing person sketch into the comparison field starting at the time of the killing stopped they get an 86 percent match on a charles bright who went missing five years and seven months ago the fbi profiler said that they were convinced that the serial killer would have had at least one body hidden at his home in order to relive the rush whenever he wanted to. They get an address for Charles Bright, and Karen Bright, his wife, still lives there and is the one who actually reported him missing in the first place. The FBI gets a warrant for the home in the yard. Gibbs and the FBI agent go to the house and find the wife and daughter of Charles Bright. Karen guesses correctly that that they found his body, but thinks it was an accident because he was a building inspector and they haven't told her that he is a supposed serial killer at this point. And Karen says that he would have never abandoned them. Her son then walks up to the door as well and she hugs her children and cries that they finally found their dad. The FBI agent had frozen during this whole interaction and apologizes to Gibbs after, saying that he was taken aback because the wife could have been a twin for some of the serial killer victims. While searching the grounds around the house, Denozo finds bone fragments and a skull, which was buried very shallowly, might I add. I, I noticed that too, and I'll also say I laughed when he's like, I found bone fragments, and it was just like a skull face. It's I'm a like, whole you skull, found a whole ass fragments. skull. Like, you, <laughs> you didn't find fragments. That was a whole skull. But I, I do give a green flag because he... He, like, brushes it with his hand first. Like, actually, no. He brushes it with his foot first. Like, he kicks the top layer of soil off. And then he's like, oh, Gibbs, I got this. And then he pulls out his little brush and brushes off the skull, which is a green flag because you're still, you are supposed to do that when you go to, like, a dig site. You're supposed to have, like, a whole, like, brush set, basically. Well, like, when the bones are still in the ground. And it's to help you move away any loose dirt on top so you can see more of the bone and basically kind of tell how much is actually buried underneath. And if you use your hand or foot instead of the brush, you could damage the bone. So Charles Bright was a building inspector for DOD, and Gibbs wants to know how he ended up there. Zeta says maybe it was an accident and he fell while working but was never found. But Gibbs points out that his car had disappeared with him. If he really had just fallen and died that way, his car wouldn't have been moved. So we then see the FBI doing a full dig of the yard and we'll give a green flag for this because they have the whole grid system set up with quadrants and they're each looking in their own quadrant to locate any bone fragments or any other evidence. And I've talked about this before. I did uh, like a fake dig with like fake skeleton and it was a plastic skeleton and different evidence. And they, (laughs) so it was really funny. They encouraged us to take pictures just like with our phone because they weren't giving us cameras. And they're like, yeah, it'll be like fun memories. And I showed the pictures to my cousin, Jordan. Hi, Jordan. She listens. And I showed the pictures to my cousin, Jordan, thinking that she would know it was a fake dig. Oh, my God. But she she was like, a few days later, she's like, yeah, I can't believe you showed me. Like, you were digging up a real skeleton. I, like, I can't. I wouldn't just show <laughs> you, just you that. I, was like, I wouldn't have it on my phone. And she, <laughs> she, she was like, wait, I thought that was real. I was like, no. <laughs> It was 
very funny. That's awesome. But yeah, props to the props at our school because they look very real. <laughs> but they were, in fact, plastic. <laughs> so the team do find the rest of the skeleton, and Ducky identifies it as a female, judging by the pelvic bone, because it's the pelvic bone shape in it. There is a green flag. And because of the lack of soft tissue, Ducky will have to wait to give an approximate time of death. So Gibbs goes to talk to the wife and children and asks how her husband ended up at Quantico. She says that he worked at all of the bases and that NCIS has them confused with someone else. Her husband was a loving man and not a monster. He treated everyone with kindness and decency. And they end up finding four more bodies in the backyard. Oh no, they find three more. A total of four bodies in the backyard. And so... Gibbs kind of just says this right after she's like, my husband was a decent man. He's like, ma'am, we found four bodies in your yard. How did they not they notice were so there were bodies shallow. in the backyard? She has kids. And if these if these bodies were from five years ago, their kids probably looked around like 14, 15. So they would definitely be playing in the backyard. And this was, it looked like it was like in the suburbs. It wasn't like in a rural area where they had like acres and acres of land. Yeah. So anyway, Gibbs was just like, ma'am there's four bodies in your yard that the team is digging up right now and she goes (laughs) well virginia is full of unmarked graves and that's what these bodies must be from to which i inserted the sure jan meme (laughs) also graves aren't like two inches deep (laughs) no they're six feet deep and she says that her husband was driving to little creek the last time she heard from him he was supposed to call her when he got to his hotel but he never called and that's when she had a feeling that something bad happened to him So they bring all the skeletal remains that they dug up from the yard into the morgue. And the FBI comes back with orders from Justice saying that the FBI is taking over the case. So the director and Gibbs don't want to give up jurisdiction. This entire thing is just a pissing match between NCIS and the FBI. And the director says that while the FBI has worked on the case for 12 years, the NCIS team has made more progress on it in three days that they've been working on it. Sick burn. So Ducky mentions the physiological defect of some serial killers so some serial killers have tumors in their brain pressing on their amygdala which is responsible for our emotions and behavioral control and there was a study done at the university of chicago where scientists studied the brains of more than 800 prisoners who were incarcerated for homicide and other heinous crimes and the brain scans revealed reduced gray matter in homicide offenders so more gray matter means more cells neurons and glia and that's what you need to make computations and like process information correctly whether it's emotional information that you use to feel empathy for someone or information that you use to control your behavior or to suppress your tendencies to react so we'll link this article in our show notes if you want to read more about it it's very interesting so back in the show they go down to the morgue where ducky tells them that he finally figured out how their decedent died in the area of the abdomen a cat scan showed wounds smoking desiccates flesh As the moisture was lost, the tissue that protected the vital organs shrank. And there are small dots on the organ that the CAT scan images showed to the point where the FBI agent needed like magnifying glasses and a magnifying glass to like see these dots. So burn and smoke bodies will shrink as a result of the heat they are exposed to, which can lead to changes in any antemortem, so that's before death, or perimortem at the time of death injuries. And I did find an interesting paper while I was looking into this because I've actually never seen like organs shrink in a case. Yeah, normally like when we have the burn victims, it's really just the outside and like obviously you see the, the skin itself shrink. 
but the organs kind of stay preserved in your chest. I've never seen like a smoke, like this guy was in a smokestack for f- six years. I've never seen something like that. So I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I was looking into it and I found an interesting paper while I was looking that talked about the usefulness of something called postmortem computed tomography or PMCT that helps differentiate between injuries that occurred prior to being burned and burn-related injuries in fire or smoke victims. So heat can cause things to happen to the body that can be mistaken for injuries, like uh, stress fractures as a result of extreme heat. Um, You have to be able to differentiate between like an actual fracture before death or a result of just so much heat in the body that your bones snap. You can tell that if they were still alive and they had that, if it's like a healed fracture or if it happens and it was say it was like a car crash and the car caught on fire and they burned inside. Like if they had any fractures or anything, there would be hemorrhaging around. So you could tell that was anti-mortem. Yep. So I've never heard of PMCT and I've never used it before, but it seemed useful and it seemed pretty neat. So I will also link that paper in our show notes. So Ducky says that the murder weapon was most likely an ice pick or a screwdriver that killed him. But at this point, it is so sharpened that it looks like the size of like a safety pin if you were like poked with a safety pin. So the serial killer was killed on a marine base, making this case NCIS jurisdiction. Boom. And they rip up the, I almost said decree. (laughs) (laughs) The warrant or whatever. Yeah, the warrant. (laughs) The decree. I also, like, I know the FBI is the FBI, but wherever the body lies, that is who has jurisdiction. I know the FBI was investigating this case for 12 years, but it is NCIS's jurisdiction. You can't just move the body. They rip up the decree, aka the warrant, in rip that decree. the 21st century. And Donoso and Ziva are tasked with helping the FBI list who would want Bright dead, and McGee goes to help Abby in the lab. Back in the morgue, Ducky is looking at the skeletal remains that were found in Bright's yard. He says there was not any recoverable tissue from any of the remains, and all four bodies were stripped to the bone. They were in shallow graves exposed to the elements, and this just brings me back to the question, how did the family not notice there were bodies in the yard if they were buried so shallowly? But Ducky thinks that the serial killer knew the person who killed him, because if this killer was smart enough to elude the FBI for so long, only someone close to him could have known his secret. Gibbs calls Dinozo and asks him to look for anyone who worked at the school where Bright was found dead, who could have been close to Bright. Abby is trying to date the bones that were found in the yard. She contacts a forensic botanist that she knows because there were roots around the bones. So if the plant can be identified and dated, it can help with their investigation. Ziva and Dinozo found that the teaching staff at the school who have worked there for five or more years, around the time that Bright went missing, claim they don't know who Bright is. So now they start looking through substitutes and also Bright's wife, Karen, who was a teacher. But apparently she was never associated with the school. But Gibbs tells them to check under her maiden name, which is when they get a match. She subbed for the school around the time that her husband went missing. So Abby goes to the forensic botanist lab to drop off samples. And while this is happening, they bring Karen in for questioning. They show her all the photos of her husband's victims, and they think she knows why he ate the toes on the victim's left foot and they ask karen to remove her shoe and reveal that she has an abnormality in her left foot and she only she has uh deformed toes my jaw dropped yeah i know i was like oh my god Gibbs was like take off your shoe (laughs) (laughs) he's so serious all the time time. 
She says that the monster who was killing women was not the man she married, and she had to stop him. She didn't go to the police because she didn't want her children to know that their father was a monster. She was trying to protect her children from that knowledge. Abby is still talking to the forensic botanist during all of this, and he says that the plant that the root is from is a wintergreen shrub. And he asks to see a photo of the scene from where the root was recovered, and she shows him and says, it was between the fibula and the tibia, which are your like lower leg shin bones below the knee. And she then zooms in on the photo of the skeletal remains. But the area she zooms in on is the head of the femur, which is the top of your upper leg bone, and the pelvic bone. So I'm going to give her a red flag for identifying that as the fibula and the tibia. At least that's what it looked like to me. I paused it and I was like, I don't think that looks like a tibia and fibula. I give her a bit of a break there. She's like a chemistry tox forensic tech, not a morgue or autopsy tech. So maybe she did get them confused. But I feel like she should know better. She's Abby. She's supposed to know everything. Right? So the botanist says that the roots and soil samples show that the bodies must have been buried for six months. But Charles Bright has been dead for five and a half years. Abby calls Gibbs immediately and tells him this information. So Karen's husband wasn't the serial killer. The wife is. <gasps> dun, 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 dun. And there's such a shift. There's such a shift. Like the FBI agents like in her face, like being like, oh, a jury would sympathize with you. They'd understand your husband was a monster. And then Gibbs is like, get away from her. <laughs> He's like, get away from that monster. And she literally turns off the whole sympathetic wife look and goes deadpan. Yeah. And then it cuts to Gibbs and the FBI agent having scotch in the office And they're talking about how crazy the case was. And they ask the question that I was thinking when it was revealed that the wife was the killer. What was the toe doing in the husband's stomach? And we never get an answer. No, it just ends like that. But I went down a whole rabbit hole of fan theories. And the one that I think I agree with, again, I think this show... This episode came out in like 09 or something, like late 2000s. And it said that the wife and husband were once a serial killer duo and somehow maybe the wife got jealous that these women look too much like her and the husband was like looking at the women in a certain way that he wasn't looking at his wife at and she got jealous and she was at the school at the same time that he was and she killed him and that's why there were only partial prints in a hair sample because she was framing him to take the fall for everything and that's why Nobody found anything out for the last 12 years, and she must have stripped the flesh off of the bones and, like, done it so the bones looked more dated than they actually were. Mm-hmm. Yep, I agree with that. Or she was just force-feeding her husband toast. <laughs> and then she force-fed him the toe to pin it all on him. But he had to nod off. She wasn't even cutting them off for him. He was gnawing him. He was munching on those toes. And I feel like it makes... It, de- it definitely makes the most sense that they were a duo at one point, because... Women are more likely to talk to other women. Like as like if you're oh, a stranger yeah. on the street, I'm way more likely to talk to a woman than a man. Yeah. And there's a couple of stories like that where it's like couples that are killing. And yeah. it's like any if there ha- if there was like a survivor that spoke after, they'll say like, "Oh, well, I approached the car cuz there was a husband and a wife and they had a baby seat in the back car." So I was like, "Oh, they're like Uh, There's a woman there, I feel safe, but, like, turns out the woman was in on it the whole time, too, and it's just awful. I think that was that one that I'm referencing. 
Fred and Rosemary West is one. That's one in. That sounds so familiar. Scot- I want to say Scotland or England. It's somewhere in the UK, and it's horrifying. And the other one I was thinking of was the Ken and Barbie Killers in Scarborough, Canada. I think that's the one I'm thinking of. Also horrifying because their first victim was the girl's little sister, Carla Homolka, and what's his face? Because Carla Homolka is like out now. She's under a different name, but she like got out. She didn't get as much time as Paul Bernardo. I always forget his name. But yeah, they were the quote Ken and Barbie Killers in Canada. Also horrifying, also terrible, terrible people. So because this was such a doozy of an episode and there were so many things about the investigation that kind of stood out to us, the main thing that stood out was their dig site and how shallow the graves were, that the bones were, in the backyard. So that made us think of a pretty well-known case. They covered this in like a mini-sode in a Netflix series called Worst Roommate Ever, and this is the case of Dorothea Puente. She was an American convicted serial killer. In the 1980s, she ran a boarding house in Sacramento, California, and murdered various elderly and mentally disabled boarders before cashing their social security checks. Puente's total count reached nine murders, and she was convicted of three, and the jury hung on the other six. Puente was born in 1929 in Redlands, California, and her parents were both alcoholics, and her father repeatedly threatened to commit suicide in front of his children. My God. I know, traumatic. Her father also, he died of tuberculosis in 1937, and her mother then worked as a sex worker, and she lost custody of the children in 1938 and then died in a motorcycle accident by the end of the year. That's a very traumatic childhood. Oh my God. Holy crap. Not that that excuses anything. Yeah, but still. Puente and her siblings were subsequently sent to an orphanage because of all of this, where she was sexually abused. Sometime after, she assumed the identity of Sharon Johansson, hiding her delinquent behavior by portraying herself as a devout Christian woman. She reestablished her reputation as a caregiver, providing young women with a sanctuary from poverty and abuse without charge. Following a divorce that she had with a man, uh, Puente focused on running a boarding house located near 15th and F Streets in Sacramento. She established herself as a genuine resource to the community to aid alcoholics, homeless people, and mentally ill people by holding Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and assisting individuals to sign up to receive Social Security benefits. She changed her public image to that of a respectable older matron by putting on vintage clothing, wearing large granny glasses, and letting her her hair turn gray. She also established herself as a respectable member in Sacramento's Hispanic community, funding charities, scholarships, and radio programs. She eventually met and married Pedro Angel Montalvo, although Montalvo abruptly left the relationship a week after their marriage. On December 21st, 1978, Dorothea Puente was convicted of illegally cashing 34 state and federal checks that belonged to her tenants. She was given five years probation and ordered to pay 4000 in restitution. On January 16, 1982, Puente picked up Malcolm McKenzie, who was 74, from a bar and took him back to her apartment. He reported that Puente had slipped something into his drink before robbing him of coins, watches, and other jewelry, including a diamond ring belonging to his mother, which she removed from his finger while he was incapacitated. 
On April 28, 1982, Ruth Monroe, who was 61, was found dead due to respiratory depression caused by a massive overdose of codeine. Monroe was reportedly in good health when she arrived at Fuente's home just over two weeks prior to her death. However, on April 25th, she told a friend, I'm so sick, I feel like I'm going to die. Monroe's death was originally ruled as undetermined overdose, but later classified to a homicide. On May 16, 1982, Dorothy Osborne, who was 49, found checks, credit cards, and other items missing eight hours after Puente visited her home and prepared her a drink. In January 1982, Puente was convicted of three grand theft charges. She was sentenced to five years in prison, state parole, until March 21, 1986, and her federal parole sentence was extended another two years until 1990. During her incarceration, she began corresponding with Everson Theodore Gilmouth, a 77-year-old retiree from Oregon. On September 9, 1985, after serving only half her sentence, Puente was released from prison, whereupon Gilmouth and a close friend who lived with his family downstairs picked her up. She married Gilmouth a short time later, and Puente hired a handyman for remodeling and asked him to build a 6 foot by 30 inch by 30 inch storage box. She agreed to give him Gilmouth's truck and $800 as payment. The day after he completed the box, he returned to find the box nailed shut. Puente asked the handyman to help her take the box, which now weighed approximately 300 pounds total, to a storage location, but ended up dumping the box near a river about an hour from Sacramento. On December 28, 1998, it was determined that Gilmouth was the previously unidentified body discovered by fishermen alongside the Sacramento River on January 1, 1986. His body was wrapped in numerous plastic bags and covered with a bed sheet held in place by electrical tape. Mothballs and blue toilet deodorizer were also found inside the box. It was later discovered that after his death, Puente mailed fake letters and cards to his sister in an, an attempt to make her believe that he was still alive. Puente also found to have forged Gilmouth's signature on his truck's certification of title and continued cashing his benefit checks until January of 1986. In the fall of 86, Betty Mae Palmer, who was 78, arrived at the boarding house and in October, Puente ordered a California ID card with her photo and Palmer's name. Two months later, the mailing address on Palmer's social security checks was charged to Puente's F Street address. Puente forged Palmer's signature and cashed nearly $7,000 worth of benefit checks belonging to Palmer. In November of 88, Palmer's partially dismembered body was discovered in a shallow hole in Puente's front yard. Her head, hands, and lower legs were never found. Toxicology reports reveal the presence of doxylamine, an over-the-counter antihistamine, as well as haloperidol and flurazepam, both of which were previously prescribed to Palmer. She was identified on January 24, 1989, through comparison to previous medical x-rays. Puente continued to cash the social security checks from several tenants between 1986 and 1988 for at least eight tenants following their disappearances. Leona Carpenter was killed in 1987, and her body was found in November of 88 in the southeast corner of Puente's yard. Vera Faye Martin, who stayed with Puente in 1987, was also found in 88, found buried under a metal shed in the yard. 
Dorothy Miller disappeared in 87 from Puentes' home, and Puente continued to forge Miller's checks, totaling over $11,000 after she was no longer at her house. Miller's remains were later discovered buried under a slab of concrete near some rose bushes in the yard. In March of 88, Benjamin Fink was sent to live with Puente. By the end of April, Fink was gone. Another tenant reported smelling a foul odor emanating from his room and was told by Puente that it was a sewer backup. On April 29th, Puente received 12 bags of cement, and that June, she had a hole dug next to the door of the metal shed, which was later filled with concrete. In November, Fink's body was discovered in this area, wrapped in plastic, knotted bed sheets, secured with duct tape, and covered with blue absorbent pads. On November 7th of 88, police spoke with John Sharp, a former resident, about the disappearance of Montoya. Initially, Sharp told police that he had seen Montoya two days earlier, but then slipped a note to the police officer that said, she's making me lie. He later met with an officer to tell his story. On November 11th, 1988, a detective returned to Puentes' residence and, with her permission, began digging in areas that appeared to be recently disturbed. 30 minutes later, he discovered the first body. Just hours after a body was discovered in her backyard, Puente slipped away from the police. How did she? She's just like, I'm just sneaking back into the bush like the Homer Simpson meme. Did they not suspect her? <laughs> I, I don't know. She's... Did they just like, because they found a body and then she dipped. And I'm like, did they, did they not think they should make sure she stayed? Right. <laughs> so two days later, an all points bulletin was issued for Puente. And then three days later, Puente was arrested after her location was tipped off to the police. On March 31st, 1989, an amended complaint was filed, charging Puente with nine counts of murder with special circumstance, qualifying it as a death penalty case. According to investigators, most of her victims had been drugged un until they were overdosed. Puente then wrapped them in bedsheets and plastic lining before dragging them to open pits in the backyard for burial. By May 24, 1990, the prosecutor rested his case, having called 71 witnesses and introducing 108 exhibits in the preliminary hearing. On June 19, 1990, a judge ruled that there was ample circumstantial evidence to send Puente to trial, and on July 31, 1990, Puente pleaded not guilty. The trial began on February 9, 1993. By the conclusion of the trial, 156 witnesses testified, more than 3,100 exhibits have been submitted, and over 22,000 pages of transcript were recorded. My god. That's insane. I wonder if, like, what's the most, and if that's, that number is up there. I need to, I need someone in the legal field to, like, yeah, give us some insight as to if this is, like, above average <laughs> for, like, this kind of case. So, the jury deliberated for 11 days, and that's when... They found her guilty for the three counts, and then they then deliberated for an additional 35 days, and that's when they were hung for the other six murders. Wow. On August 26, 1993, Puente was convicted of one count of first-degree murder with special circumstances and two counts of second-degree murder. She received life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Puente died in prison on March 27th, 2011 from natural causes at the age of 82. Oh my god. This one is- She is the worst roommate ever. She's the worst. I love that she was on that show. They're like, you know who's a bad roommate? <laughs> the serial killer. This woman. <laughs> like <laughs> Serial killer who killed people and then buried them in her yard. And oh my god. I, 
I don't actually love it. I just think it's crazy how I was about to say I love how she snuck out, but I don't love it. I think it's crazy that she was able to sneak out <laughs> after they found the first body. She's like, oh, that's they cr- caught her three days after. That's crazy. I'm going to go out quick. Do you guys want anything? <laughs> I'll be back. I'm going to go get some lemonade. I'll be right back. Like, what is she- I'm going out for milk. <laughs> I'm just going to run across the street really quick. How did she slip out? I, that's what I need to know. Yeah, this this case is crazy. Just like the whole her burying the bodies in the yard and like not doing and like a great job just reminded me of like what the episode. Yeah, I want to know how big the yard was too, because Sacramento. I feel like it's a small yard. Yeah, I think it was a small yard. I feel like it had to be a tiny yard. I'm gonna Google Map it now. Oh my god, <laughs> we're gonna be on a list. We're already on a list. <laughs> But you, we said before, our FBI agents are fans of our podcast. I really hope they are so that they know I'm not just looking up if I can bite my finger off. <laughs> so to end this episode, we tallied a total of five green flags and three red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of NCIS does pass in terms of forensic accuracy. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with any episode suggestions you may have. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.